Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You could, you know, wargame it and play with it for entertainment purposes, but really, when you look at the all of Wall Street strategists and analysts and economists, not a one of them had in their January 2020 forecast for the year ahead, global pandemic, market crash, and recovery. Mm. So that just goes to show you how completely pointless forecasts are, other than it makes for entertaining reading and they're great marketing, but they're terrible ways to invest your money. Barry Ritholtz, Wall Street Polymath, on markets, investor psychology, and Manhattan 20 years after September 11th. Please stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon and Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salmon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple at linkfulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate us, and recommend the show to others. And follow on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at FullDRadio. Joining me from the home office in New York is none other than Barry Ritholtz, co-founder, chairman, and chief investment officer of Ritholtz Wealth Management. It's a financial planning and asset management firm with over $2.5 billion in assets under management. It was launched in 2013, rapidly growing. Barry's career focus has been on how the intersection of behavioral economics and data affects investors. You see his commentaries on Bloomberg TV, Bloomberg Radio, the Masters Business Podcast. How are you, sir? I'm doing pretty good. Surviving the lockdown and post-pandemic Delta period as, as best as I can hope for. Barry Ritholtz, if I rewind you back to the terrifying month of March 2020, when you, you, you start to hear about emergency rooms filling up in Manhattan, this mysterious disease, we're sanitizing everything, the market falls 30%. Could you have predicted whatever, I don't know, 18, 20 months hence that there'd be an international shortage in microchips for cars, a shortage of used cars, NFTs selling left and right, markets at record highs, just this lost idea of risk and hazard in markets that everything is kind of a free-for-all. So, so first, in March of, of 2020, my biggest shortage concern was that you couldn't get toilet paper or paper towels. Sure. I was not thinking in terms of what's going to happen in, in terms of automobiles 18 months hence. And it, for those people who have been reading me over the years, they know that I'm a big believer that most forecasts are, are just marketing. They're a waste of time, mostly because the future is both unknown and unknowable. And there's simply too much randomness. To, to really think out a year ahead ahead. You you could, you know, wargame it and play with it for entertainment purposes, but really when you look at the all of Wall Street strategists and analysts and economists, not a one of them had in their January twenty twenty forecast for the year ahead global pandemic, market crash, and recovery. Hmm. So that just goes to show you how completely pointless forecasts are, other than it makes for entertaining reading and they're great marketing, but they're terrible ways to invest your money. What have you been telling clients uh, recently and that people who are looking at uh, the Federal Reserve at constant zero plus interest rate policy, printing money out there, kind of punting the can, kicking the can down the road on when they might, quote unquote, normalize interest rates again. It's just been a scarier and scarier time. You kind of have to just bite the bullet and invest. It's the, they, I guess they call it the pain trade. Um, so I'm going to give you three specific conversations that, that I've had with clients over the past 18 months. And by the way, these aren't just conversations. These end up being written columns and blog posts mm. and, and 
podcasts and conversations. Um, you know, the old line um, is I write to figure out what I think. Sure. Uh, that that comes from the former librarian of uh, Congress said that. Uh, he also added, uh, that's John Borston. Uh, he also added, besides at that hour, all the bars are closed. Um, <laughs> so he had a he had a sense of humor. But the first piece that was relevant to this was really the conversation about externalities. And I, by the way, I I always love when I get this horrific feedback on a on a blog post or a column telling me what a clueless idiot I am. And I'm I'm being polite. You should actually see some of the, the emails. Uh, and some of the language. So the piece I wrote that was published on Bloomberg on April 1st, 2020 was, don't assume the pandemic has e ended the bull market. And everybody who wrote told me in no uncertain terms what a complete and total idiot I was. But the conversation, the discussion really goes something like this. Markets tend to move in long arcs, long secular markets that, long secular trends that are driven by very broad societal and economic functions. And my favorite example is the post-World War II, 1946 to 66. A ton of stuff happened. There were lots of recessions over that period, but the market just powered higher and higher. Rise of suburbia, car culture, mm. interstate highway, electronic industry, civilian travel, all that, all that stuff. And so when you have a, a secular bull market underway, like the one that began in 2013. And no, we don't measure bull markets from the bear market lows in March 2009. Hold that aside. Um, they tend to last a decade or two. They, they're not short affairs. That's just a massive amount of energy that propels corporate revenues and profits and GDP and wages and jobs. Once momentum gets underway, that's a very hard thing to derail. And the examples I like to show people is when you look at non-economic factors that cause a market correction or crash or whatever you want to call it, Pearl Harbor or the uh, JFK assassination or September 11th, or you can even make the argument that 1987 was caused by the combination of portfolio insurance and just how far behind the NYSE was in terms of manually processing trades pre-computers. They were so far behind they would shut. Oh, the crash! Late. The crash of eighty-seven. Yeah, you could you could argue that that was an externality, separate and apart from the economy. And in fact, the economy did not go into recession. The market finished up one percent for the year, and the bull market continued pretty much straight through for another you know thirteen years. So when I I made the argument is this is like the meteor that killed the dinosaur. This has nothing to do with with the economy or the market cycle or everything else. It will have an economic impact, and the market's knee-jerk reaction is down. But anytime you see a move down that fast, that usually means something else is going on. And and subsequent events prove that perspective to be correct. So that was bullet point one. Externalities are not the same as economic-driven recessions. So an externality, you mean, just for our, our lay listeners, a kind of a, an exogenous shock, an asteroid right. type thing. In this, a in this tsunami. Right. Yeah. Look what yeah. happened in Japan with the tsunami and the yeah. nuclear meltdown. And this is not part of the normal economic cycle. And what tends to happen with markets when they suffer uh, an exogenous shock, an externality, they wobble a little bit and then they continue resuming their previous tr trend. The JFK assassination, the market was in an uptrend. It wobbled. And after that kind of passed, it went back doing what it was doing. 9-11, the opposite. The markets were in a downtrend. They had, had peaked in March 2000 when September 2011 hit. Markets were in a downtrend. They fell. They rallied. And then they went back to doing what they were doing, which was trying to find a, a bottom, which they didn't mm. get to until October 2 and then revisited in March 03. So, Barry, that's been 20 years since September 11th. And if you look back at all of those Years, I think the overwhelming majority of them, the Federal Reserve has been at least an emergency interest rate policy or something close to emergency interest rate policy. Is that something that gives you pause when you kind of think back that it's not been a – I mean, everybody looks for the existential question, what is normal? But if the Fed has been easy now for the better part of two decades, what are we assuming in terms of the cost of capital, interest rates embedded in these corporate cash flows? It's, 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 it's a lot of largesse. So I don't work in a think tank. I work in an asset management firm. And I, I, I've had this discussion and argument with other friends who think they work in think tanks, but they're really working 
in an asset management shop. And they they give me this whole diatribe on why, why fiscal stimulus by the federal government or monetary stimulus by the Fed, why mm-hmm. how terrible it is and why they shouldn't be doing that. And I'm like, you have the wrong job. You should go work for Cato or one of the big think tanks where they pay you to sit around and stroke your chin and think deep thoughts. My job is to manage assets on behalf of clients. And when you have fiscal stimulus, when you have monetary stimulus, you want to be long equity. And and I, it's that simple. I mean, I, I don't want to grossly reduce all the way the context and all the nuance from this. But the bottom line is when the Fed is accommodative, when inflation is low, when interest rates are low, equities are a good place to be. P.S. We did a study looking at when do rate increases hurt equity markets. And it turns out it's not just when they're rising and it's not just when inflation is up. It's when they're rising from moderate levels and inflation is up dramatically. So if inflation, which I don't really see as a big problem here, but if inflation becomes an issue and the Fed has to take their accommodative zero rates up to 2%, who cares? That's still incredibly accommodative uh, to, to the economy and, and to mm. markets. It's now when rates go from 35 4% to 55 6%, then you have some real problems. But 0 to 1 or 1 to 2, it's incredibly accommodative. And that's the magic word of the day is context context so you can understand what the hell is going on. I I have a real issue with this sort of denominator blindness where people give you one number but no context. (laughs) Rates are going up. Yeah, from zero. What do I care? Oh, wait, my mortgage rate's going to tick up to 3.5? Who cares? Are you kidding me? That's just, you know, the worst sort of scare tactics that we see everywhere. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You are listening to Barry Ritholtz, co-founder, chairman, and chief investment officer of Ritholtz Wealth Management in Manhattan. I say one of my fond memories in New York is uh, seeing you walk from Penn Station or Grand Central to the Bloomberg building. You'd often have this, I don't know, not a trench coat, but a scarf, and people would actually swarm you. You're recognizable from TV. Your blog has been going strong now for more than a decade. And it's like- guys. Well, it's like you almost are like, I don't know, an E.F. Hutton, Charles Schwab type figure <laughs> for the LIRR. And I always like I just wanted to watch it from across the street and shadow you up to the Bloomberg building. I want to quote from an article you wrote, just uh, time to stop believing deficit BS. You wrote this on September 3rd. You're not allowed and, to say the BS word. You have well, to. Well, no, we're, we're family on the blog. Show. I spell that out. What do you do if you have a philosophy, you write, that over the course of a half a century is continually proven wrong? I do not mean a little bit off or theoretically askew, but verifiably, factually, quantifiably wrong. Do you admit the error and change course, or do you double down and keep repeating the same nonsense, hoping that maybe in another half century you might be proven right? Which brings us to those paragons of Puritan fiscal morality, the deficit fighters. They've been repeating the same arguments again and again my entire adult life. They make dire, scary warnings about government deficits, and yet none of the things they warn about ever come true. We're told over and over and over again that if we allow the federal government to deficit spend, a parade of horrors awaits us, including crowding out private capital, choking innovation, and new company formation. The cost of U.S. borrowing will skyrocket, making the debt impossible to manage. The U.S. dollar will be devastated and will be radically devalued against all other currencies. All of this will cause rampant inflation, spiking prices to levels not seen before. Deficits will act as a drag on the economy. You finally write, it has been 50 years of hearing this, and none of it has proven true. So I'm calling BS on this, and you should too. Is there an element of of crying wolf with deficit hawks? I mean, we hear about these fabled bond vigilantes and people that are going to punish the U.S. government, Congress, the Federal Reserve for monetary and fiscal profligacy. Spend now, put it all on credit, worry later. And it seems like, you know, you're right here. We're not being punished for it. If anything, the dollar continues to be the redoubt of safety. Whenever there's a, a, a crisis domestically or internationally, even if our debt gets downgraded 10 years ago, people storm into United States debt. Uh, it's kind of this American exceptionalism. So after about 40, 50 years, you have to wonder, is this BS? Um, well, let me tell you the motivation behind that because uh, stuff is going on 
in D.C., which is kind of uh, kind of interesting. But this comes from just a basic philosophy of investing, which is, uh, I mentioned earlier, the future is inherently unknown. We are making probabilistic assessments about that unknown and unknowable future with limited information. And so how best are we to allocate capital under those circumstances? And to do that effectively, you have to admit what you know, what you don't know, what you know for certain, where your blind spots are. There's a surprising amount of philosophy and sort of Zen self-awareness if you want to be a good investor. And it's like the it's like the Rumsfeldian school of thought as opposed well, to the Ritholtzian. Can I tell you, he did not come up with the concept of unknown unknowns. He made it popular. But, you know, anybody who studies epistemology or studies any sort of philosophy of knowledge, you know, there are the things we know. There are the things we are not sure if we're right about or not. There are the things that we're aware of as a blind spot. And that fourth quadrant is that's what a black swan is, the unknown unknowns. I, I, I had interviewed somebody who is a, a quant and the Sandy, I'm drawing a blank on his name, Sandy Retray from Man Group. And this, by the way, this is the guy who created the VIX index. So this guy understands black swans and volatility. And and he said his favorite question he gets at conferences are when people say, well, what's the next black swan? And the answer is, if I could tell you what the next black swan is, well, then it's not a black swan. Right, and the black swans are things that come out of left field, and nobody is really prepared to. Um, uh, no one's positioned for, or at least very, very few people are appropriately positioned, both in terms of their portfolio and and even their 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 mental outlook. So I find bringing that philosophy to other areas and seeing if you can, you know, sort of do an out of sample application. What other fields are there where people are saying things? that are demonstrably false, and yet an entire industry is built upon that sort of nonsense. And, and, and by the way, we have that all over finance, but you could go all sorts of other places. It's quite, it's quite fascinating to me. Well, here's, here's, a, here's a thing that that got me thinking about. Since the onset of this pandemic, I've been asking doctors left and right how much uh, pandemic, kind of the bubonic plague, 1918, 1917, and 19 were studied in med school. And most have been very forthcoming and saying not None. much, None. actually. I mean, we kind of short shrifted it. So to what extent, and I know it's not a neat parallel, is there a lack of institutional memory right now on bond trading desks or even these, these you know, beard stroking types at the Cato Institute and others about the time when we were punished for fiscal and monetary profligacy. Yet there aren't many people out there who were practitioners in the late 70s or early 80s at a time when interest rates were soaring and crowding things out. Of course, this could rear its head again. Yes and no. The you know one of the things, uh, one of the problems that we run into is institutional memory is important, but when it gets to an extreme, when you start to have people with PTSD. It leads to bad outcomes, and probably the most prominent example these days has been all the, you know, running around with their hair on fire about inflation, and that's because an entire generation of economists came of age in the 1970s with the end of uh, Vietnam and the Watergate uh, malaise, but more importantly, the oil embargo and the massive spike in inflation, and, and to show you how clueless so many of these people were, uh, and continue to be, in the 2000s, we had a huge spike in inflation. I don't know if people forget, but oil shot up to $150 a barrel. Milk was 7 or $8 a gallon. Steak had gone crazy. And none of the traditional economists were, were talking about it, which makes me wonder- well, stop, stop with that for a minute. And I wonder if the inflation definition is bunk. People ask me that all the time. You hear about core inflation excluding volatile food and energy prices then what the heck are we talking about right core inflation is not theoretical nonsense. theoretical inflation right so one of the things i really like whenever someone says to me you know the bls underreports inflation and you can't rely on it i'm like all right well if you don't trust the bls let's go to the mit billion price project they created a piece of software that goes out and scrapes the internet for all these prices and literally it's 
millions and millions, maybe billions is an exaggeration, but it's millions and millions of prices. And they create this model of what does everything cost? Not like a weighted this much real estate and this much energy and this much food. Hey, let's grab every price we can. Is it going up or is it going down? And part of the problem, especially for you know that generation that came of age in the 60s and 70s, is they miss the gradual changes in front of them. I'm kind of in the valley between the baby boomers and the Gen X. I, I don't relate to boomers all that much. They're usually a little older than me. But the Gen Xers, like my kid sister's generation, they're younger than me. So I kind of stand in between those two groups and it gives me a, a little perspective. And if you look at the past 30 years, most of the things I buy have either come down in price or at the same price has gotten much, much better. So, mm. so uh, I'll give you my favorite pandemic example. When we first began the lockdown, I, so literally today is the seventh year I've been living in this house. We, we closed on, I want to say it was like the fourth or the seventh, something like that, of September back in 2014. And we set up Fios uh, as our internet provider. And as soon as the lockdown got serious, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to be doing all these podcasts and all these TV interviews from home. Let me up my bandwidth. I'll pay the extra money. So I call up <laughs> Verizon Fios and I say, hey, I want a commercial package, whatever the, you know, take me from 300 megabits to 1,000. What's that going to cost? And they pull up my account and gonna, they said, it'll cost you $12 a month less. I'm like, oh, I understand. For six years, prices and speeds have been going in opposite directions, and I was stuck with whatever I bought in 2014. So now I'm at 1,000 megabits up and down, and it cost me 49 instead of $66. Whatever, whatever the difference is, it's you know meaningless. Only my speed is three or four times what it was before. That's the nature of technology, economies of scale, moving from early adopters to late adopters to mass use. And, and when we look at a lot of the things that we buy, software, televisions, hardware, games, clothing, I mean, furniture. Televisions, televisions are being given away they're now. They're free. The, I, know, I just 4K technology. They're practically free. It's insane. I mean, in the era of binging, it's, it's, un, it's unthinkable. You go back and look at what a laptop costs when I bought my first laptop you know, in the mid '90s, compared to what you can get one now, or a cheap Chromebook. You know, clothing is another thing out there. The things you can buy at Amazon, for example, you know, razor blades that used to cost a lot, right. or interchangeable fungible parts. So, but I guess that is that is kind of taken for granted because you do get the initial sticker shock of the gas pump right. when and, and oil, oil went up to one hundred and forty dollars a barrel, or labor costs at the restaurant and menu prices that hit you in the head immediately, or housing. Barry, where does housing so, sit in the so grand scheme of things? It's like everybody's lament right now that they can't afford rent, they can't afford a starter house. Yeah, so let's talk about housing and with the footnote, healthcare costs and education costs have gone through the roof. Although I think education is the next field that is going to feel the competitive sting of technology that's going to drive prices lower. Healthcare should have. They just, for reasons that are complicated, it hasn't succumbed to actual market-based competition. P.S., call a hospital and say, hey, I want to do a uh, this procedure. They can't tell you what it'll cost. So how can anybody even shop for price? So, so healthcare, hold off to the side. When you look at home prices, you have to look at two factors, the purchase price of the home and then the monthly carrying costs on that. And for our purposes, let's assume that the monthly carrying costs of things like taxes and maintenance and your electric bill and all those fun things are more or less flat. Um, but the last monthly carrying cost is your mortgage. And so as rates have gone lower and lower, Surprisingly, the Home Affordability Index has ma been maintained at a fairly reasonable basis. And arguably, home prices, even after the past year's spike, cost about the same on a monthly basis as they did two or three years ago. Now, before we go too far off into the weeds here, you've had a massive supply disruption, which I've written about, that after wildly old overbuilding in the first half of the 2000s, Builders stopped making as many single-family homes, and in fact, they plummeted 
and you had a decade of this structural deficit in the availability of all kinds of new homes, but especially starter homes, single-family homes, while they were building multifamily homes and apartment buildings. And at the same time, you had the graduating class into 0809 financial crisis, more or less living at home, household formation was delayed for a couple of years, and then by the time we got to 18, 19, and then 20, the, there was a... There wasn't enough inventory to keep exactly. up with the snapback in demand. And then on top of everything else, in the middle of the pandemic, who who is... How can you move? How can you look at apartments? How could you... The number of homes for sale plummeted. Now, that's gradually coming back online, the number of existing homes for sale. It'll take a good couple of years before the home builders can catch up on demand, But the old joke about um, the commodities traders joke is the cure for high prices is high prices. And my favorite example of that is lumber. Lumber tripled. The price went through the roof this year as people were doing home renovations and expansions and new homes. And the difference between lumber and semiconductors are when, when the price of lumber triples, people who own mills and own forests say, Fred, Bob, go cut down a few trees. We need some more wood. And so they go cut down a few more trees, and suddenly there's no supply disruption. And if anything, there's been an excess amount of supply after there being a shortage. Not only did all the gains of the past year go away, lumber is actually negative for 2021. Stop and think about that. The cure for high prices is high prices. Now, semiconductors are a very, very specific entity. They're incre- they're amongst the most complex things that humans manufacture. There's 700 steps. And it's not just like, oh, I haven't printed anything on my laser printer in the other room. Let me turn it on and and print something out. It's an enormous space step. Um, It's an enormous process. Uh, ASM lithography and those sort of things, you're layering these micron thin um, layers of circuits uh, by the hundreds on top of each other. And every little piece of that machinery has to be cleaned and updated and working perfectly. And when you shut it off for a year, you basically you're rebuilding those machines from scratch. So it wouldn't shouldn't surprise anyone that it's going to take at least three or four quarters for semiconductors to get back to normal, maybe even longer, which means there's a shortage of new cars. Used cars sure, have sure. gone through the roof. I mean, I think at this point, everybody kind of understands it. I, I, I spent a lot of the pandemic buying cars in the beginning because they were cheap and suddenly I have too many cars in my driveway. So I started selling them and I was shocked. Just uh, My wife's BMW 2 Series, after owning it for three years and putting 10,000 miles on it, we sold it for four grand more than we paid for it. That's how crazy that market has gotten. Full disclosure, we're talking to Barry Ritholtz. Stay with us. This show, podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate us, and recommend the show to friends and family. If you're just joining us, we are talking to Wall Street voice extraordinaire Barry Ritholtz. He is the co-founder, chairman, and chief investment officer of Ritholtz Wealth Management. You also hear him on Bloomberg Radio, Bloomberg TV. Do you still have the byline in the Washington Post, Barry? Um, No, that... uh. I think that run ended around 2016. Coincidentally, when uh, Bezos took over, they wanted me to do less personal finance and more sort of policy analysis. And uh, I'm a big fan of kind of trying to stay in your own lane. Um, What expertise do I have in governing policy? None. So, um, well, I've seen you. I've seen you riff on astronomy and the speed of of rockets, and so I mean all sorts of stuff. You are a polymath. Uh, so I could talk, you know, rare earth thesis and why the Drake equation is wrong. I have enough math and physics behind me that I can have a conversation about that. But I would never hold myself out as an expert in that space. I had an interesting debate with the guy who runs Brian Green, who runs the um, astrophysics. Um, center at uh, Columbia. And we started talking about, you know, how rare is life in our galaxy and in the universe. And you could always, it's always amusing when someone thinks they're talking to a lay person, and then you start going through a bunch of things. He's like, oh, so you you know this stuff. I'm like, well, not like you do, but enough that I can ask. I just want to know enough to ask intelligent questions 
of the people who know a whole lot more than I do. And I found that's been a helpful helpful approach. That said, it, it wouldn't surprise me if life in our galaxy was exceedingly rare and the Earth is a shockingly, I don't want to say unique, but rare outlier relative to what the rest of the hostile galaxy looks like. Well, I have a little less metaphysical question for you, Barry. <laughs> uh, something much more mundane in the the top 10 holdings of the S&P 500 right now, snapshot 2021. I never thought in this 20, 30 years that the NASDAQ would revisit 5,000 again, its fateful year 2000 <laughs> nominal high. And now we're above 15,000. And I look at the S&P 500, which is the most quoted and benchmarked index of American stock market activity, and it is dominated to the tune of 25% or 26 or 27% by technology holdings. The trillion dollar, the multi-trillion dollar club, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Facebook, Alphabet, Google, uh, Tesla, which is a tech company, NVIDIA, you talk about microchips. Uh, this is, is this problematic when clients come up to you right now and say, look, I want to be long the market. I want to be long the market, but I don't want to buy a technology fund. So I mentioned there were a couple of different um discussions I had since the pandemic began. The second one was last summer, summer of 2020, where people said, why do I want to stay invested? This market is insane. Wherever I look, businesses are closing, uh, the local restaurants are shutting, the dry cleaners, the retailers. Why do I want to own stocks when the economy is going to hell and the market seemed to be disconnected from the economy? And so we had to go through the market cap weighting of all these companies to show people, hey, the, the market is perfectly rational. Dry, your local dry cleaners or the mom and pop restaurant, they're not in the S&P 500 index. What's, what's in that index are the biggest, best run, fastest growing global entities, uh, many of which get a ton of their revenue from overseas. And so- you know, the amount of, of revenue that each of Apple's divisions generate, uh, just their app store, if it was a standalone entity, would be an S&P 500 top 50 company. It, it, it's crazy. And so you, you look at the, the economy shuts down and people still have to eat and get paper goods and food. And so who's doing well with that? Well, it was... It was Amazon and uh, Target and Walmart, anybody who could who could make deliveries, um, Instacart, you, you go through the list. People were working from home, so it's Microsoft and Apple and and Google and on and on. People are bored, so Netflix and Facebook. Now, there's a difference between how successful a Microsoft or an Apple are going to be over time versus how crazy things with Zoom got. I would think Zoom. Um, uh, unless we move to a pure hybrid work from home for some days and be in the office for some days, I, I think Zoom has peaked uh, sometime last year. But who knows if if we see another what's after Delta, a Muon, or whatever the next variants are, and if people are stuck at home, those companies have done well because they're generating incredible amounts of of revenue as people continue to buy their services. And I, I find myself having to remind people, you understand how companies grow, right? They sell more products, they do it more efficiently, they generate more revenue, and they get profits. And that's why people buy their stock. And when you look at some of those companies, I, I we were, you know, you notice what you haven't heard this year, but we heard a ton of it last year and the year before. This is looking an awful lot like the 1999.com boom and bust. And my answer to that is, were those companies doing hundreds of billions of dollars in revenue? Were those companies making massive amounts of profits? What does Apple have in cash on its balance sheet? Something like 200 and something billion dollars? Uh, this is nothing like that. And, and uh, you know, people kind of think mean reversion means it always goes back to the way it was. You tell that to the steam and leather belt companies of the early 20th century their mean reversion was zero because that's where they ended up. They went to zero. They went out of business. The reason technology is dominating the S&P 500 is we're all using technology constantly, every day, endlessly. None of us could get our jobs done. None of us could do anything without this tech. And so 
Of course, their valuation is going up. It, it's, I mean, it's obvious in hindsight, but I think it was pretty obvious last summer when I wrote that piece. Maybe Mr. Market is rational after all. Barry, what do you think when you walk through the still largely empty office canyons of Manhattan? Uh, this Delta variant clearly has thrown a wrench into everyone's plans for the great comeback in the autumn. Uh, some companies have pushed out to January at the very least. Uh, that's an awful lot of inventory and square footage. You guys, I believe, are, are near Bryant Park, that gorgeous office you have. Right. And and we've been, you know, we had this internal conversation. What happens if if we didn't have a 10-year lease? I think we're in year five of a 10-year lease. What would happen if we were looking for office space from scratch? And the answer was we would have a much smaller than 5,000 square foot office just uh, probably half of that. Maybe we would sublet from somewhere just so we had a place to meet. Although don't underestimate the value to a, a, a growing firm of having a corporate culture and having people in the office on a regular basis. I, I, I think that is important. That said, you know, you, you just had the entire West Side Hudson Yards development go up. That's added millions of square feet. There's Probably an excess uh, of office space in New York. It's anyone's guess, 10, 20, 30%. Who knows? If you remember post 9 11, now that we're coming up on the 20 year anniversary, a lot of that downtown space that used to be sort of the second um, downtown or the second midtown. It's, res it's it, residential in Whole Foods. Right. Yeah. It all converted to residential. And I wouldn't be surprised to see a lot of office space go through the same thing. And that might be good for uh, Manhattan affordability levels because when you look around, the prices are still you know, bonkers. Uh, the, the average selling price of a co-op, something like $1.3 million, it's nuts. It's all but impossible to find a place for under $1,000 a month on a rental. So that affordability in that part of the country has just you know gone off the rails. But that said- if you have too much of one thing and not enough of another, that's the genius of the marketplace. The market will find a way to accommodate everybody. Um, we, we saw it happen last time. Uh, don't be surprised if 20 years from now we look back and say, man, when did Manhattan just become a residential island with very little office space stuck there somewhere around uh, Midtown? That's so crazy. And I, what about what about writ larger across the United States? Uh, strip malls and shopping plazas and Starbucks and Panera's realizing they the the dining room square footage is an albatross. Yeah. So one of the things about the pandemic lockdown has been how revealing it's it has been of things that were either already changing or had been changing for a while that people just kind of recognized. And and I kind of laughed. Early pandemic, I had a Zoom call with a bunch of people, and people were genuinely astonished at the technology. When, when we launched Ritholtz Wealth Management in 2013, we were pretty virtual from day one. We had clients all over the country. We had employees that we eventually added outside of, of New York pretty rapidly. So we've been using screen share and, and FaceTime and things like that for eight years and and I always kind of giggle telling people, you know, FaceTime has been around for more than a decade, right? None of this yeah, stuff is yeah. really new technology. You're just using it and you're getting comfortable with it, but it's been around forever. So so that's the first thing about it. The second thing is when you when you look at retail, I, I pulled a piece from 08 where I talked about the U.S. retail footprint is massive and wildly overbuilt, especially compared to... All right, Japan's a cheat because their, you know, their cities are are so tight on space. But the UK and and France, which are closer to us than, um, closer to our economy than and and our demographics than something like Japan, uh, the US is like five times the amount of retail square footage than those countries do. And so what was taking place was a gradual de-retailing. Uh, of the U.S. and it, it, it part of it is clearly Amazon, but part of it is clearly you have a generation that is less focused on material goods than than their parents uh, in the millennials, and you also have just the uh, concept of of sports shopping, or some people call it retail therapy. That's not what this generation does, and 
you know, the youth of America drive a lot of trends. And by youth, I, I really mean anyone under 30. And when that age cohort isn't going to the mall, isn't going shopping that way, you're going to see these stores start to close. But this is already a trend that's 20 years old. This is not pandemic related, although clearly the pandemic was the final nail in the coffin for a lot of weaker retailers. There can be no doubt about that. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Barry Ritholtz. He's co-founder, chairman, and chief investment officer of Ritholtz Wealth Management, one of the fastest growing registered investment advisors. I believe it now has $2.5 billion of assets under management. You see Barry on Bloomberg Television. You hear him on Bloomberg Radio. Uh, Barry, in the in the final stretch we have with you, I, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about that morning 20 years ago. And I was on a train, you know, I was working for smartmoney.com. It was uh, the magazine of the Wall Street yep. Journal, the website, and it had an office down on Wall Street on Exchange Place, I believe, in the old Kidder Peabody building. And I, it was just a routine morning. I got on the train and went downtown, and um, somewhere around Chambers Street, a uh, a cleaning lady came on, and she was hyperventilating, and she put her bag down, and the entire train took notice and asked her after two minutes, what happened? And she, she told us the unthinkable, that this the, the tower was hit. Uh, bear, it took her the longest time to, to utter this. And I got out at Wall Street, where our office was, and all the other commuters and subway riders pushed me back in the car, we go under the water to Brooklyn at Brooklyn Heights, the gorgeous promenade on that otherwise gorgeous morning, and witnessed it all transpire from the promenade at Brooklyn Heights. It's all so crisp in my memory. I take it to bed every night. The the sirens, the sounds, the flittering papers that were coming out of the towers. I can't believe it's been 20 years. I struggle to kind of remember what we were thinking about, what our economic normal was, what our collective worldview was the morning before that. And I'm trying to reconcile it with the news out of Afghanistan and the Taliban is back in charge and kind of the unthinkable headlines if you told me back then that President Donald Trump would have been negotiating with the Taliban in 2020. How do you, I mean, this is a long-winded way of asking you, how do you even think back at this 20 years that has transpired? I, I, I'm still miffed, just say it quickly, that I thought New York wouldn't recover after that. Who would want to get on a subway? There'd be threats after threats after threats, and yet you couldn't get a table at a restaurant two, three years after 9-11. Yeah, so so there's a handful of things in that that are kind of fascinated, fascinating in hindsight, but were horrifying in real time. Um, my office was located, um, the headquarters were on the 28th floor of Two World Trade. I was out in the Long Island office. I wasn't in the city every day back then. And um, I got a hold of my head trader on the phone, who is a former Marine jungle combat instructor. And he, big tough guy, he was scared out of his wits, shocked really more more than anything. He said, "Is you know your training kicks in?" Um, he had come up out of the subway, leaned against the two world trade to light a cigarette to be blocked from the. Um, wind and as he's next to the building, the other building is hit and his training sends him straight to the water. You know, that's your first instincts. Big explosion, get to the water. And so I stayed on the phone with him for about 45 minutes until the, the towers came down and he was giving me a running dialogue of everything was going on. I, I never take notes, but for some reason I, I thought to take notes that day and and that night sent it to him said hey is this accurate yes do you mind if i put it up on the blog go ahead and and so that was back in the days of yahoo geo cities and so i put that up and went to sleep and the next day woke up to like 2000 emails it was kind of uh just like shocking how 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 that just dominated everything and ps what i mean by dominated everything it dominated economics, politics, culture, it dominated all of society for a while. Uh, the, the really strange thing about the post 9-11 period was, and, and I said this back then, I was perplexed by it then, I think I understand it better now, why we stopped or took our eye off the ball in Afghanistan 
and decided to invade Iraq, which by now we all know had nothing whatsoever to do with 9-11. That was really Afghanistan with their help from our friends, the Saudis. What was it, something like 21 of 23 people flying those planes were were Saudi nationals? That that never went answered. So you had this massive, uh, as much as people uh, think that uh, Trump was a a, a bad president, the results of decisions made by George Bush and Dick Cheney, um, we're still feeling today. Uh, the, uh, the Afghani war not being managed properly, pouring all of our focus and manpower and blood and treasure into Iraq was a giant mistake. And, and a lot of people said it in real time then, and they were shouted down. There are people that I just stopped reading because they were so completely and totally heinous in their take on the Iraq war. It, it was the worst type of jingoism and the worst type of, of, you know, false nationalism. And you just end up looking at this saying, what is going on here? How have we completely dropped the ball after 3,000 Americans were killed on September 11th? Why aren't we finishing what we started which is going after the bad guys who who began this. And it's I continue to this day to be frustrated how that has been allowed to continue. We screwed up really badly by not taking the war in Afghanistan seriously and moving towards a completely different war of choice, an unnecessary war of choice, that had nothing whatsoever to do with 9-11. It, it's, it's shocking, and I wish I would be around 100 years from now to see how history looks at it. I, I think they're going to be as perplexed then as I am now. And then to consider the rejiggering of the financial district, I mean, what was called Wall Street proper, I believe a lot of it has been converted to condos, some boutique hotels, uh, Midtown Manhattan, I mean, you know, there was psychographically Wall Street. There was a Lehman Brothers building there, and then they moved to Midtown. And now to 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 consider that a lot of these firms are struggling to reassemble their trading floors and have people come back to the office. Manhattan has been laid low again, and there are very open questions about how and when it can recover. So, so the challenge with that, you know, we just hired a, a bunch of people over the past 18 months um, including a chief compliance officer and a couple of new advisors and a couple of new admins. And, and since the pandemic began, the question that we've been wrestling with is everybody is working well remotely. Do I have to hire someone local at a New York salary when I could just as easily hire someone from Minnesota or Nebraska or Texas for literally half the salary? You wonder, it's not just one firm, what happens when lots and lots of firms do that? What happens to the people who work in New York and live in in a more expensive New York sort of area and they're priced out of this sort of uh, place? And so you, you, it's really, you know, it it really becomes a a, a challenge. I, I think that's the dynamic that any expensive urban area has to really think about because, you know, yes, there's some bit of prestige to having a headquarter in New York and being able to bring your staff here and all that sort of stuff. But a lot of these changes take place on the margins. And I think you're going to start to see that sort of labor arbitrage. Look, the past 30 years have been defined by a global labor arbitrage. Where if there was With the offshoring yeah. and yeah, if you can get labor fungibly overseas, if I want gig work, I could send it out. I could have this show edited by somebody in Latvia. So, so the question is, I don't, I don't know what you would even <laughs> call that replacing low end hirings or replacing less expensive hirings from the expensive coastal regions with with the inner parts of the country that are much less expensive, and I, I think that's going to be a genuine. Uh, issue that is going to affect real estate prices, commercial real estate prices, um, for quite a while. And that's why I wouldn't be surprised to see all of this stuff get shifted towards residential. 
Close me out, Barry Redholtz. Uh, in your own words, wisdom you wish you knew 30 years ago. The one thing that stands out. The one thing when you your eyelids shut at night and you're like, darn, I wish I, I had known this in 1991. Not stock tips. So so that's the last question I ask all my guests on, on the podcast. What do you know today that you wish you knew when you were first getting started? And, you know, a, a lot of the – I made a list of 10 of mine – and some of them are things like build your skill stack and, and addition by subtraction. And all those I kind of learned, you know, along the way and relatively early. The, the one thing that I didn't learn until the second half of my career that I wish I knew earlier was the importance of assembling a portfolio of people, meaning how do you surround yourself with a group of people that you would do anything for? Hire them, work for them, invest in their startups, introduce them to anybody you know. And, and I, you know, I, over the past 10, 12 years, I've, I've done more and more of that. I've, I've kind of put together this human portfolio. But I wish I understood that earlier because there are people I had, you know, just really passing or casual relationships with that with the benefit of hindsight, it would have served both me and them uh, well, had I put them into my portfolio or even understood that I was creating a portfolio of people. And P.S., that's a two-way street. You end up in other people's portfolios. And and when they ask you for something or, you know, it, there's a small circle of uh, a dozen people that it doesn't matter what they ask for. If it's within my power to grant it, I grant it. And I've found that it's paid dividends, you know, time and time again. It, it's an odd thing that, not that you do it for these reasons, but it's not a cost. You you get back what you give and then some. Um, I could quote you some Beatles songs or other stuff that, that no, veer I into quote the you corny. This. I've, been try- I've been trying now for 15, 16, 17 years to, to get inside your your recommended portfolio, to get invited <laughs> to your legendary end of summer bash at your East Egg uh mansion which you acquired from jay gatsby but i digress <laughs> barry ritholtz co-founder chairman and cio of ritholtz wealth management one of my favorite reads wall street the meaning of life uh, broadly sir you are always welcome on this show you should know that all right i'll see you tomorrow <laughs> full disclosure special thanks to claire morgan at notterly this show podcast to npr1 spotify and apple Podcasts at link fulldradio.com you can catch me on Twitter, at Facebook, and Instagram at Full D Radio, and holler if you'd like to have us on your air. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening. Back with you next week. Mm-hmm.